part of the trajectory of the story was the fascination with his difference and then the turning against his difference. That was a trajectory that came to me right out of the box because, you know, as much as people are enchanted by otherness, people are also terrified of otherness. We see that in our cultures so vividly today. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week, we're delighted to have back with us the wonderful Caroline Thompson, who joined us a few weeks ago to discuss her script for The Nightmare Before Christmas. Today, however, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of her much-beloved debut, Edward Scissorhands. Directed by Tim Burton, this fantastical gothic fairy tale saw Johnny Depp play a Frankensteinian man with metallic hands, who falls in love with the daughter of a makeup saleswoman. Three decades on, the film remains cherished by millions of people worldwide, who continue to find heartbreak and hilarity in its surreal depiction of suburbia. I spoke to Caroline to hear some fascinating secrets from her experience writing the movie, including how it was initially conceived as a musical. We also talked about the celebration of difference that she wanted the film to be, and the frankly incredible reason why Tom Cruise walked away from the part, having come close to playing Edward. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Caroline, welcome back to Script Apart. You are our first ever two-time guest on the show. We should have got you a plaque or something. (laughs) Or at least a little card, you know, whatever. We'll get one in the post. Happy to be here. (laughs) Uh, So, Edward Scissorhands. uh, I love this film. It's 30 years old somehow. Um, I wish we kind of had done this a little bit earlier in lockdown when, before I'd had a chance to get a haircut, when I did actually quite resemble Edward. (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about the anniversary are you wondering where the time went like how does it feel uh that this film is approaching its 30th anniversary it must feel like just yesterday you you were writing this film sadly that is how time goes my former mother-in-law when i was in my 20s i lamented how quickly time passed and she said just you wait Uh, (laughs) and she's absolutely right It, it it does seem impossible i've had a lot of life since I wrote this movie, but it all just went pew. I know that Edward was a very personal project and that you brought a lot of your own life and experience to the table uh, as you sat down to write the film. Am I right in thinking that the character was actually based on a border collie that you'd had as a pet who died a few years earlier and, and you tried to bring him back to life through the character. You sort of instilled in Edward a lot of that border collie's kind of puppyish spirit and innocence. <laughs> That's almost correct. Um, her name was Ariel. She was not a border collie, but she kind of resembled one. So that's that's a good get. She was a, an amazing creature. She was so uh, locked on to me that I could literally walk her in Manhattan without a leash. I mean, she was an amazing, responsive, alert, aware. I, well, I always thought, well, if she only had the physiognomy of me, um, she could speak to me and, 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 but she was very expressive anyway with, um, and that is the, the, the beloved upon whom I based the character of Edward. When I arrived at the set of Edward, um, after week one, I, I didn't go during the first week of shooting cause I, I, I felt that would be an intrusion, but I did go the second week and 
Johnny Depp immediately cornered me and said, I, I don't understand this character at all. Could you help me? Um, being a screenwriter was actually not my place to answer his question, but I didn't know that. Yay. <laughs> so I answered his question and um, I told him about basing the character on my dog. Uh, I have noticed in subsequent interviews many years later, he now claims he based the character on his dog. False. <laughs> my dog. I explained it to him. He got it. And you can't really tell the scenes that he shot that first week where, because luckily he just put a look of confusion on his face. Um, <laughs> but, but after that, he, he, he really nailed it. The character was born as a drawing by Tim, channeling his feelings of isolation into this image of a thin, pale man with long, sharp blades for fingers. What did you instantly warm to about that character when he presented it to you? He actually didn't show me the drawing. I saw it many years later as a reference for the art department. Um, but he told me about it. Uh, well, quite frankly, I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard of in my life. <laughs> uh, such an obvious metaphor. So clean. So to the point. So, you know, to the point. Get it? Uh, that I knew immediately that it was absolutely brilliant. And that it, 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 the metaphor itself expressed everything you need to know about the character. So the rest was gravy. Um, so that, so I responded to that um, with a bit of hilarity. And I um, also, Tim and I, Tim's from Burbank where I had just moved. So there was this sort of Burbank suburban obsession and I grew up in suburbia with suburban obsession. And Tim and I were both obsessed by the, the apparent outward beauty of suburbia and the sort of evil underpinnings that exists there, uh, or at least did in our minds. Um, and so I immediately knew, I don't know, it's, it's the only time it's ever happened to me. I said, stop right there. I know exactly what the story is. And I went home and and I, I wrote a prose version of it because that's what I was fundamentally at that point was a prose writer, uh, just sort of like in three weeks. And, and the story um, essentially, as far as I can recall, didn't change after that. So it sort of came to me in a burst, which, which is, God knows, I wish that had happened again. <laughs> <laughs> but when you talk about, um, yeah, the sort of visual metaphor of this character... There is heartbreak and humanity kind of built into this into this this guy's image. So inherently, he hurts those who he gets close to, and that's something we've all experienced in our life. But with Edward, it's manifested physically. Was was that the metaphor that felt so clean and so interesting to you? Yes, and it did. It 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 was just so this like a, a lightning bolt. Also. As humans, I, I've noticed over time that we seldom know what to do with our hands. So I think everyone is sort of a little uncomfortable with their hands and a little bit in awe of their hands. Um, and so that was a component as well. But yes, the idea that he can't shake hands with anybody or what he touches would be harmed, um, including his own face, because he has nicked himself yeah. quite a bit. Um, w I thought was incredibly powerful and um, and beautiful. When you when you mentioned that you uh, this this draft this first draft just tumbled out of you in three weeks, 
What do you think that was down to? Are you sort of typically quite prolific or was there just something so rich about the character, so much to explore? Well, I like to write quickly. Over the years, I developed um, the pattern of writing five pages a day, period, the end. So once I had done my five pages, I would leave the office. Uh, and that became to, to, to be the case because it was productive for me. I, if I if I had a burst and wrote 10 pages, I was so wiped out, I didn't go back to the office for three days. So I, could, I found this sort of steady march. But if you think about it, five pages a day, you've got a first draft of a screenplay by the end of a month, which is very quick. Um, so that's sort of, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, my first husband was also a writer and I was working on a novel and so was he. And, uh, and he would be in the other room smoking pot. And so I, and so he was like, Tick on his typewriter, and I was like <laughs> on mine. These were typewriters, uh, and I would, you know, leave the house after finishing my pages, and he would say, "You can't be a real writer. You're, you know, you, you're not sitting at your desk all day." I was like, "Yeah, well, whatever." Uh, and um, so, yes, tumbles out. That's that's kind of how I like things to go. But if I have a, you know, I've tried to follow Hemingway's rule. I've always followed his rule. I know what you're going to do the next time you sit down. Don't leave not knowing what's coming next, A. And B, if I always sleep on the problems. Like, okay, I, here's my issue about, about tomorrow's work. How can I solve it? And I, I mostly invariably wake up with the solution. So Your first draft was originally written as a musical. Um, can, you, can you tell me about how you imagine music operating within the movie and why ultimately you and Tim decided to move away from the idea of making Edward Scissorhands a musical. When Tim and I were first discussing the project, he had the belief that um, because it was so surreal, that um, people would be more inclined to um, be open to it if it were a musical. So I thought, oh, well, that sounds fun. <laughs> so I wrote a bunch of really terrible lyrics. Um, the song I remember was called I Can't Handle It. <laughs> okay, uh, just got it. <laughs> you got it. Um, and I, and I, I don't know if those lyrics still exist, if I gave them to the Writers Guild with my collection of stuff or if I gave them to Matthew Bourne when he was doing the Edward Scissorhands musical. I came up on them not that many years ago. Um, and they were really awful. And, and uh, <laughs> so luckily when Tim read them, he said, I don't think we need to do a musical. So <laughs> I think he also thought the story was strong enough to stand on its own. You mentioned that the structure of the film, the, the actual story came to you fairly quickly. You knew fairly early on into the creative process, not only exactly what was going to happen to the character, but also from the sounds of it too, the tone of the film, that fantastical emotionally bittersweet tone. I loved the bookends. Uh, I love the sadness of Edward never ages and Kim does. Um, I loved the, the, the sort of sweet idea that he, that, 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 that it didn't snow before he came up to town, but now it snows. Um, those things came to me very, very quickly. Um, I, I mean, I I did sort of eventually find myself, and I don't know if it was before I wrote these fast pages or if it was after, but you know, I found myself making a list of 
of things that we, you know, that he couldn't do with his hands. And so I kind of like, I, you know, I, it was important to me to sort of be thorough. Um, and I actually made cards. I, I, I had forgotten this, but, I, but somebody showed them to me not long ago. I made, you know, index cards that I put on, apparently put on the wall to construct the, to, to finally construct the, the thing. I don't remember doing that. I've never done it. I don't think I ever did it since, uh, but there they were. Um, and, um, but I think I was trying to be a professional screenwriter. And I think I'd read somewhere that professional screenwriters index card there's, I don't know, who knows. <laughs> I can understand though, how that would be a helpful exercise because presumably out of that list, you come up with things that have like such comic potential, but then such kind of heartbreak built into them. Yes. And I wanted to mix those up. Um, uh, and I think it, I think it worked. I mean, what was really intuitive about the structure to me and, and, and which I was, am particularly delighted by is that it's, it's very comedic at first. Um, and, and this, I experienced the success of this when I went to the first preview with an audience of uh, in Orange County, California, which is a very, was at that time, particularly a very conservative county. So uh, in previews, the um, audience is invited to come and generally they invite the target audience to come. And so it was a bunch of high school kids and, and every boy in the line looked like Jim and every girl looked like Kim and Tim, who I went to the preview with, took one look at them and went, ran to the bathroom and spent the entire screening vomiting. <laughs> um, I sat at the back of the theater and watched the audience laugh when I had hoped they would laugh, softening up. And then, um, and this sounds really calculated and I suppose it is. I mean, that's the definition of writing. You're trying to get people to feel what you want them to feel. So they laughed and then about halfway through, they went pretty quiet and then as things took a turn, you could hear sniffles. And by the end, you could hear sobs. I have never been so thrilled in my entire life that the audience got what, you know, that they, they like, you know, you don't know if your jokes are going to make people laugh. And I, and I remember telling somebody that I was writing a comedy, they went like, well, you're not funny. <laughs> so I mean, you know, but it's situational comedy. I, it's true. I don't write jokes. I write, I write, I hope in the case of Edward anyway, that situations that make you laugh. And um, I, it, it worked. It's a fish out of water story. It's an outsider story. And I've always been interested in, I've always felt like an outsider. I think everyone feels like an outsider. Um, all my stories are essentially, if upon examination, are animal stories, um, even if they don't they're, you know, literally star an animal, which some of them do. Um, because to me, they're the ultimate outsiders in our, in our, I mean, they have accommodated us. They've accommodated their behavior to us and they, you know, most of them clearly don't get it. It's like, why are you doing that? You know? Um, and also it's born of my own feelings of, it's simple feelings like being a little kid and not being tall enough to see the top of the table. You can only see the underneath. And, you know, that is a very um, outsider place to be. And everyone's there at some point or another, every human. 
You mentioned a moment ago the framing device that bookends the movie, and I love this. So we start with shots of a log cabin in the woods, its windows brightly lit, a horse-drawn sleigh, a snowman, a frozen pond, and a mountain topped by a gothic mansion. In the swirling snow, the house with its dark spires almost seems part of a, part of the craggy granite upon which it's perched. The camera then pulls back through this window pane to show an old woman. The old woman is tucking her granddaughter into bed. Um, Snuggle under now, she says. It's cold out there. The little girl asks, why is it snowing, grandmommy? Where does it come from? And then that's the question that prompts the story of Edward. And it's this mystery that sort of you sort of forget about as the plot goes on. And then it's so satisfying when it comes back. Was there a particular inspiration for that framing device? Yes, Um, it was Peter Pan. Uh, I loved, so I, I don't know if you see, have seen this in the UK, but there was a, um, Peter Pan that was aired every year when I was a child. It was, um, a film version of the stage play where Mary Martin played Peter and Cyril Richard played Captain Hook. Um, and I mean, I'm delighted by the world we live in now, but I also miss the world where, you you know, a child waited for an entire year to go by before you could see Peter Pan again or Wizard of Oz again, (laughs) um, where those were, you know, serious events in the family's life. Um, Anyway, at the end of of that play, um, old Wendy is sitting in a rocking chair and young Wendy, her maybe her daughter may even be her granddaughter says, well, don't you want to see Peter? And she said, no, I, I don't, I don't want him to see me now. I want, I want him to remember me the way I was then, which is I echoed in Kim's dialogue. Uh, Cause I just thought that was just so sad for everybody. Edward is eternally young um, and, and doesn't get to, have the escape of aging, but he also doesn't have the curse of aging. And Kim can't make time stop and, and doesn't want him to forget her the way she was. I mean, it was, I can't, I mean, I, I think it was a very direct, I know it was a very direct homage to that. And we should talk about the setting too, the, the wintriness of it all, because there are all these signifiers of Christmas and the festive season, the horse-drawn sleigh, the snowman. And uh, I know we touched on this in the uh, Nightmare Before Christmas episode, but I'd love to know what's your relationship with Christmas and, and why did Edward benefit from being set against this backdrop? I hate Christmas, actually. <laughs> <laughs> why is that? Because it's a time of year when the expectations for for happiness are high and never in my life have they ever been met. So there's a constant sense of letdown and and, and disappointment attached to Christmas for me. Um, God, there I said it. I don't think I've ever admitted that to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you about one of our great sponsors this week. Siren Screams is a new audio horror anthology series from Script Sirens, a collective of female and non-binary scriptwriters based in the West Midlands. All six of these eerie audio plays were created remotely during lockdown, in that spooky season between Halloween and Friday, November 13th. And you know what? It shows. Each episode is full of fright and imagination. Give it a go by checking them out on Spotify. Search for Siren Screams. That's S-I-R-E-N Screams. Okay, 
back to the conversation. You mentioned that Peter Pan was like a Christmas watch for you. Was that why, I suppose the snow of also, you needed it to be winter for that payoff, for, for the snow thing to work? In thinking about the things Edward could do with his hands, you know, it, uh, making those ice sculptures, making snow was something mm. that came to me. So I, so I utilized it. So I utilized it inside the story and then I used it as, the bridge to telling the story, as you as you so smartly pointed out. And the grandmother then begins telling the story of Edward, beginning with the spooky looking house on the hill. A long time ago, an inventor lived in that mansion. He made a lot of things. He also made a man. He gave him insides, a heart, a brain, everything. Nobody knows how, but he did it. He had just about finished covering him with a delicate plastic that looked exactly like skin. He had only the hands to go when... The, grand, the granddaughter interrupts, when what? When he died. You set up the idea of this Frankensteinian creation who is orphaned and unfinished and grows up alone in this empty house. And we see his, his silhouette before swooping down into the town, which up close you describe as a full undeviating grid. Rows of sagging trees have been planted at the exact intervals. The houses are unimaginative variations on the same efficient design. So, Caroline, can you take me through your vision for this town, the banality of it, and if there was anything that you wanted to express about suburbia in in the way you presented it? Well, I grew up in a in a rather older neighborhood, um, relatively speaking, for America, not for your country, um, and it, mostly it was elderly people who lived in my neighborhood. So, life on the street was a bit puny. That <laughs> um, <laughs> I had a friend who lived in a contemporary just built development uh, where every house was a variation on every other house. They had this incredible life on the street. She came home from school and everybody was out on the street playing football and the parents were out having their cocktails and their lawn chairs. And to me, it seemed like life. It seemed like, oh my God, I'm so jealous. I want to live there. And my mother would look at me like, are you crazy? And um, because our neighborhood was beautiful and theirs was not, but, but to me, it was beautiful. Their, hers was beautiful because I had all this life. Um, so the beauty in that banality was enchanting to me. Uh, but as I grew up, I also came to understand the true banality of it and the sort of soul numbing qualities of its, um, uh, regimentation and, and, and how, how strange that is. Um, so that's where that came from. We then meet Joyce, who's chatting to a dishwasher repairman. And it's the first, but certainly not the last hint of this, like almost volcanic <laughs> repressed sexuality that these suburbanites seem to have, Joyce especially. Can you talk me through that sort of motif that runs through the film? Well, it's, pretty much the only piece of writing I'm trying to think, but where every single character is based on somebody I know or knew at the time. Um, so Joyce Monroe was based on my friend's mom. My friend and her mom are both gone now. So I don't feel too bad about saying th their names, but anyway, her, Jocelyn Monroney was my friend's mother and Joyce Monroe is based on her and not literally, of course, but on my impressions of her as a very, when I, from, from childhood as a, as a very sort of um, sexy being. 
And, and so I, uh, you know, I exaggerated you know, my perception of her to create Joyce. And I'm from Maryland, which is just on the cusp of the American South. So, you know, this sort of Southern uh, vision of Joyce um, is, was also part of the zeitgeist in which I grew up. And speaking of characters based on people that you knew, uh, the doorbell rings and at the door is Peg Boggs, the local Avon lady. Chipper and practical in her early 40s, she, she wears a neatly tailored outfit, her hair and smile both perfectly in place. Am I right in thinking that Peg was based on your mum? Oh, yeah. Craig was based on my mom. My mom had a habit of bringing not strangers home, but of bringing, you know, letting people stay in our home who weren't family. So we I, I grew up um, surrounded by people that I wasn't related to. And and so a, a, a woman who would say you're coming home with me was exactly my mom. And I love the introduction to her. So it says in the script here, morning, Joyce, Avon calling, says Peg. Uh, why Peg, have you gone blind? Replies Joyce. Can't you see that there's a vehicle in my driveway? I'm surprised you didn't realize it means I'm busy. Joyce slams the door before Peg's before Peg gets a chance to ask if she can stop back later. We then see Peg go to a string of houses, failing to make sales at each. This is such a great way to get characters on uh, to get audiences on side. It, it's kind of what um, I always think of as a spill the coffee introduction because it makes me think of um, Sarah Connor being introduced in the Terminator. We have. We first meet her having a hard time at the diner she works at and she spills coffee over herself. And as an audience, we can't help but sympathize. What was the impetus behind um, introducing Peg this way? Yeah, it was a way to sort of set up the neighborhood and set up who's in the neighborhood and set up. I mean, my my own mom was not an Avon lady, but um, she was a very social person. And so she could have been. Um, But yeah, it was just an intuitive. There was no... uh, precedent in my mind for that. I suppose we need to see her sort of struggling to make sales for the next scene to to make sense. So Peg is desperate and decides to knock on one last door in the hope of a sale, the spooky mansion on the hill. She wanders in and then Peg reaches the attic, the subject of her pursuit, little more than the outline of a man in the dimness, presses himself against the far wall. His breath snatches he seems jumpy. His movements erratic, unpredictable. It's pretty neat the way Tim like literally shot my script, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. <laughs> I haven't read this. I haven't heard it read it or read it in a long time. But literally, shot by shot, I was pretty good. Yeah, getting him at, at tricking him into following me. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I did actually read it whilst watching, and I mean the next section: light glances off his hands, off metal, long, sharp, lethal, perhaps a knife. Why are you hiding back there? You can't possibly be afraid of me. I'm an Avon sales representative. I'm as harmless as a cherry pie. The man in the shadow stirs and is caught more distinctively by a shaft of dust-filled sunlight. He does seem to be holding on to something. Shears, a full foot long. They belong, of course, to Edward Scissorhands. And that is basically exactly how it is, like image for image. Let's talk about Edward. How did you see Edward when like, you first agreed to take on the project and sat down and started to think about who this guy is? John Cusack. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you wrote for John. And Laura Dern. Wow. I can imagine Laura actually. In. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what about his character? Like his personality? That puppyishness. They, again, that was my dog. I mean, I, I literally, every time I put him in a scene, I, w- I thought to myself, well, how would Ariel react at this moment? The dog. 
Um, and uh, this was way before Little Mermaid. So please don't think I named my dog after Little Mermaid. It was after <laughs> Shakespeare. <laughs> Pretentious as that might seem. So, yeah, I would literally, you know, when you ha- for me anyway, when I have characters in a scene, uh, particularly if I understand them as well as I understood these characters, which was a blessing, uh, you know, I could just put the, the, the character or the person or animal or whatever upon whom the character was based into the moment and just let it play. I mean, that's, that's really how that worked. And it was, a um, it's probably how it came out so quickly. And of course it wasn't John Cusack who got the role. It was Johnny Depp, but there were some people who went up for it along the way. So the legend has it that Michael Jackson was pretty desperate for the role. Is that something you're aware of? Uh, not, well, I suppose I did write a script later for Michael. So maybe that's why, but it never got made. Uh, I mean, maybe that's why he wanted me so badly, but, um, I don't, I, but Tom Cruise wanted the part. Do you know yeah. that story? And he didn't like the ending or something like that? No, no. He, he wanted to know how Edward went to the bathroom, <laughs> which, which is a question that of course couldn't have been answered. That is crazy. Well, I have watched this film a hundred times and I've never once thought, you know what this movie needs? A scene where they explain how he goes to the loo. But now you're going to ask that question when you watch it because it's going to come to your mind. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Moving on from uh, urination. Um, Edward says something like 160 words in the entire film. Was that something that came naturally as a result of just the timidness of the character? Or was that something that you kind of consciously put in there? Because it's so effective. It, it really adds to like Edward's point of difference. He's like, a, he's like a silent film star in a time of talkies. He is. And I, and I did not realize it was only pointed out when somebody counted that, that he had that few lines. Um, again, being based on a dog... You'd think he wouldn't have all that many words, uh, but it, 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 it suits him. I mean, he is sort of, again, I would think that his progenitors, in addition to the ones I've named, Tim and the dog, are Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. I mean, they are, you know, he, he is a, a, um, a mime by dint, just by dint of, of, um, having to have his movements expressed so much and have having been impaired by hands and his movements with that. Um, and it's interesting that he ended up, you know, basically with a white face and a black, you know, he could be putting himself in a box before you know it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, my high school boyfriend was a mime and I, and I have some friends who think I based Edward on him, which I didn't. Um, but, um, that's a very apt perception that yes, he is like a silent character in a time of talkies. Yeah. Well spoke. And the detail you write into the script of his face being covered in scratches where he keeps hurting himself. It, it's really childlike and it brings out like a paternal urge in, uh, in Peg, but also in, in the audience. And it makes perfect sense when after Edward explains that he has no mother or father, Peg then decides to take him down to the town to fix him up and look after him. And yeah, this is then what sort of sets up that fish out of water story, that outsider story, a quote unquote abnormal person being introduced to quote unquote normality. Of course, over the duration of the film, we'll see that there's actually something more human about the inhuman character, Edward, this Frankensteinian creation than a lot of the human characters. Um, but yeah, you, um, you'd inherited 
the character from from Tim, or he had at least sort of devised Edward Scissorhands, this this boy with scissors for hands. How did you then arrive at this idea of the bulk of this movie would be introducing him into society and seeing how he fares? Well, I think that outsiders want to be insiders. And so it was an exploration of um, that desire and the consequences that can come of that desire. Excuse me. Um, So it, it was really exploring the wanting to fit in, which is, as I, as I believe, we, we all feel like outsiders. We all want to fit in. And um, nobody really can. So it was, it, it, it was my way of exploring that. And there is so much comedy to be mined from that setup, like Edward accidentally puncturing his waterbed or him drinking whiskey, having never tasted alcohol before and having this crazy reaction to it. Have you got like a favorite moment uh, from like the comic side of the film? I, I love the dinner table scene where Edward is trying to eat and watch. And again, Alan Arkin, he's such a good comedian watching Edward with the pee on his, on his blade, you know, try to get it to his mouth and fail. Um, <laughs> I love the sweetness of giving the dog the haircut, you know, the cutting that dog's, you know, bangs, it's toward the end. Um, ah, boy, I, I don't know. I'm hoping there are other moments, but I can't think of them right now. You also then sort of start to introduce this motif of Edward cutting the hedges into these incredible designs. And that's such a kind of glimpse into his artistic soul. Um, what was the inspiration behind that? Well, again, in making my list of things that you, you know, I made a list of things you can't do if you have scissors for hands, but I also made a list of things you can do. And topiary and ice sculptures um, made that list. And so that hence the, the idea for the topiary was born. And among all this, you start to introduce this, this love story element of the movie. Um, how did you go about crafting that? Well, part of fitting in is falling, is being able to fall in love. Um, I think the real sleight of hand was, and that Winona did beautifully, was her shift from being repelled by Edward, being annoyed by Edward, being aghast at Edward, to falling in love with Edward. Um, I mean, it was a real gentle uh, march that she earned, and luckily the script supported. but I just think, you know, we all want to be loved and Edward wants to be loved. And so, and, and Edward is from the minute he sees her photograph, when, he, when Peg is introducing him to the house and Danny was able so beautifully to, to capture the sweetness of that moment in his music to seeing her picture just made him like swell with joy and, and, and love. But of course, one obstacle in the way is Jim. Kim's boyfriend, who you introduce in the script as a big guy in a bad leather jacket whose arm stays slung around Kim's shoulder no matter how much she moves around. So yeah, how did you arrive at him as the character who was to be the film's antagonist? And and when you say that most of the characters in this film were inspired by people you knew, who was it that you'd encountered in real life that inspired Jim? Well, Kim and Jim were based upon people I met when I moved to Burbank. So <clears throat> there's this, there was this lovely girl called Lori, um, 
Lori Obar, if you're watching, uh, <laughs> who helped me with my horse and kept her horse at my house in Burbank. And she was just, she was 17 or 18 years old when I met her. And she was just this sort of magic, shining, sparkling, um, beautiful, you know, you just felt like she could do anything, um, gifted. Um, and she had this huge, horrible lug of a boyfriend, uh, um, who named Malcolm, if you're watching, uh, <laughs> who, uh, just, I felt like he was just unbearable for her. You know, it was just like, it was just like, why are you doing this to yourself? Um, so that was my inspiration for them. And so he, moving to Burbank was pretty crucial, actually, in writing mm. this. I mean, Tim and I talked about the story. Well, I don't know. You know, when I sat down to write it, I wrote them. So anyway, they were crucial to it. And luckily, I met them when I moved to Burbank. As the plot moves forward, we then get to this really memorable scene where the ladies all get their hair cut by Edward. And there's one beat in particular within this scene uh, where Joyce is getting her hair cut that um, you write as overtly sexual. And uh, Tim certainly brought that sexuality to the way that uh, he shot it as well. Joyce fetishizes Edward and she really exoticizes him for his difference. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and about the, the scene that it later leads to where they're in the salon, Joyce tries to seduce Edward, who runs out of there sparking Joyce to turn against the character and later lead the town revolt against him? Well, part of the trajectory of the story was um, the fascination with his difference and then the turning against his difference. That was um, a trajectory that came to me right out of the box because, you know, as much as people are enchanted by otherness, People are also terrified of otherness. We see that in our cultures so vividly today, unfortunately. Um, so I so I knew there was going to be a turning against. And Joyce became the obvious pivot for that because um, she wanted something from Edward he couldn't give her or didn't even understand she was asking. Um, so his innocence and her you know, aggressiveness, um, had, had a conflict with each other that, um, you know, led me to her turning against him you know, just so easily. It, it was, again, you know, the, when you're writing something like this or any screenplay, at least from my perspective, uh, you know, straight, stupid, simple is sort of <laughs> what I, what I carry in my heart. Hey everyone, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you that support for Script Apart this week comes from Cave Day. Revising scripts requires supreme focus. The best writers know they need to harness everything they've got to overcome internal and external obstacles. Cave Day lead group focus sessions for a worldwide community every day on Zoom that help you do just that. Think of it like a group fitness class, but for your work. A trained guide leads check-ins, deep work sprints, and energizing breaks. Members report they get two to four times more done with Cave Day's science-backed method. Join the world's most focused community and work alongside Emmy winners and Oscar winners. Gift cards are available and make a great present as we head towards the festive season, and Script Apart listeners can try it out for free. Head to caveday.org and type in the promo code SCRIPTAPART, all uppercase, at checkout. 
That's caveday.org. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Edward is scapegoated for a crime that he didn't commit, and the town turns on him. They become this pitchfork mob. It's all very reminiscent of the Frankensteinian story that I know is a big touchstone for you as a writer. Um, Kim and Edward flee to the mansion from the beginning of the film. Jim goes after them with a gun in hand. He ambushes Edward and tries to fight him. Edward at first refuses to fight back. Um, Jim then attacks Kim as she sort of attempts to intervene. And it's that that sparks Edward to confront Jim and attempt to fight him. Uh, It ends with Jim impaled on Edward's hands. Kim confesses her love to Edward and kisses him before departing. As the neighbours gather, Kim convinces them that Jim and Edward killed each other. This is such an exciting climax to the film, Caroline. Can you, can you tell me about the construction of this, this scene and this final act? It was probably sort of the most awkward part of the story. It had to be inevitable that Edward would return to the Gothic mansion and be left alone. And the simplest way to leave him alone was for people to think he was no longer there. And if he's dead, he, you know, in their minds, then he's no longer there. And this mansion, you know, is this sort of scary, you know, dark secret, as it were, of, of, of the bucolic suburban world. Um, so, so they wouldn't be inclined to go and, you know, confirm Kim's description or not. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and again, I, this is a Frankenstein story, as you've pointed out, and, and was very much inspired by Frankenstein. Um, so that sort of pitchfork scene was, was, is part of that trope, uh, and therefore necessary, I felt. And, um, you know, for me, the, the really important character was, was, um, Peg who turned against Edward in her own way earlier, uh, in this whole construction of the ending and, um, you know, turned out to defend her own family above her emotions of, of empathy for him and, uh, and also her reputation and, and all those like wild human things that we cling to, uh, you know, against our better selves. Um, so to me, she was the real betrayer of him. Um, mm. The townspeople were just doing what mobs do. Um, and um, there was some objection about killing Jim, but uh, I guess finally I got my way. It was an objection from Tim, so we got our way. Um, but they felt that it would sort of, you know, make it less family friendly. <laughs> but Jim deserved to die, so he did. <laughs> <laughs> And we then return to that framing device. The elderly woman reveals that she is Kim and explains that she never saw Edward again. She prefers not to visit him because just like Peter Pan, decades have passed and she wants him to remember her as she was in her youth. And then we have that lovely reveal where mystery solved. The reason why we have snow is because Edward is still alive and uh, the snow is him carving these ice sculptures. Um, I wanted to talk, Caroline, about something that you're not something your screenplay does, but something it doesn't do. So Edward is never fixed. People all the way through the film are telling him, you know, I have a doctor friend who I think could help you out and all this kind of thing. 
But there's, there was never a point from the sounds of it where you wanted to sort of reward him at the end of the film with human hands. Uh, why was that important to you? It was important to me, I think, because it would be denying his identity if he took away his difference. I mean, um, his difference informs him and our differences inform us as much as we want to obliterate them and just be like everybody else. It's our differences that make us interesting. And it's our differences that help us be able to contribute our unique gifts. I felt it was important not to disrespect him by making him like everybody else. I think I actually stated that in the television show where he, um, where the, the woman in the audience says, but why would you want to be, why would you want regular hands? Then you'd be like everybody else. And, um, or some, something to that effect. And, 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 and I, and I really feel that our differences are to be celebrated and, and, and the minute we want to blot them out, that's the minute that, um, you know, we, we are in trouble. But the films, as a result of this, has been championed as a really positive representation of disability and a positive allegory for what it's like to live with disability. Has that meant a lot to you, hearing those kind of stories over the years? It does. And I actually, come Sunday, um, there is a disability film festival that is screening Edward Scissorhands, and I'll be doing a, a Zoom interview after that screening or a Q&A with the audience after that screening. And it, 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 it means a lot to me. I think it's a really beautiful thing. It's, it's not really something I considered specifically, uh, but that, the, I mean, the man who's going to be doing the interview said that he saw this movie as a 10 year old child and that it, it changed his life because it made him feel um, not so alone. And I mean, Jesus, that's a, you know, what a gift to me that is to, to, to be able to understand the impact that this film has had on people. I mean, I, you know, what am I here for, but to help out and, 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 you know, that's just a, a huge gift to me. And I suppose on a broader level, anyone who's ever felt like an outsider or feels like they have this point of difference that makes it difficult for them to fit in. I think lots of people seem to take solace from this film and sort of Doesn't everybody feel like that, Al? Doesn't everybody feel like an outsider? I mean, isn't true. that as common as any part of our humanness? Um, you know, we don't talk about it much, but I think that is something that's incredibly universal amongst everybody. Can you see Edward Scissorhands getting made today? When you look out at Hollywood, do you still see the same possibilities for an idea as unusual from two talented people still making their names in the business? Could it happen? What do you think? <laughs> we'll move on to the next question. <laughs> no, it couldn't have happened. It absolutely could not have happened. The, when I started out in the business, uh, it was still run by... Um, you know, individuals who, most of them whom didn't have a university education, most of them were sort of like street scrappy, you know, intuitive, impulsive, bossy pants, but, you know, really, you know, people who had courage and care. And I, I mean, I, I went to a relatively fancy university and I was pretty unique in coming to Hollywood with those credentials. Nowadays, 
you know, you go to Harvard, boom, Hollywood. Uh, but, but, but back then that was not the case and God bless that it wasn't because eventually, so pretty quickly though, in snuck the business school graduates who, and nowadays it's fucking algorithms, excuse my language yeah. for, for calculating how to make a movie and how to release a movie and what movies get made. Um, and, you know, so people don't work off their guts the way they used to work. And, um, if people weren't working off their guts, this movie never in a million years would have gotten made. Yeah. Do you think Hollywood in a way didn't heed the lessons of the sort of enduring success of Edward Scissorhands? Because although it wasn't an, it wasn't a big overnight smash, as you say, it has gone on to have such an impact and influence over the years. You would have hoped that that would open the door for more unusual stories that come from a point of difference. Yeah, but that would require trust in the filmmakers. Mm. That would require belief that people have something to offer as opposed to your filmmaker is your pawn. Um, so it, that takes a lot of self-confidence. And as I said, a lot of trust and, and those, as far as I can tell anyway, and, and I'm pretty much retired, thankfully, um, the business is, is really short in courage and trust. And tell me, Caroline, on the actual anniversary of uh, Edward Scissorhands, Will you raise a glass to Edward on, on the actual night? How do you think you'll celebrate, if at all? Do you happen to know what the date is? I think it's 6th of December. The 6th of December? I think so, off the top of my head. I don't know. Well, whatever day it is, I um, uh, I have given up drinking, so I guess it won't be that. But I, I'll dance to the moon or something. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'll say thanks to the movie gods um, uh, and to Tim Burton. Because I wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. Caroline, this has been so awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Script Apart again. It is my pleasure, Al. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, um, and I, uh, I'm just really grateful to you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kamal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, the script apart podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>